Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Count Shannon on the program, either uh, on radio or as a podcast. Uh, and most interesting guy for us, uh, a guy most of our audience will not be familiar with by name. Nope. Nope. Dave Hopkinson is the executive vice president of MSG Sports in New York. He's the president of, of uh, team business operations as well. But he spent Good. over 20 years with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, Toronto guy. Good Canadian boy. And um, we're going to talk to him about his journey which also included a trip to Spain, uh, working for several years with Real Madrid, and a, kind of an unusual circle. Dave Hopkinson, when we come back after these messages. McCown Shannon, back with you. Um, our guest today uh, needs no introduction to anybody who understands the business of uh, sports. He's been on the scene for, uh, well, a long time, more than a quarter of a century, I would say. Uh, he's the executive vice president of MSG sports. He's the president of team business ops for the same organization. Um, he looks after the, um, the Knicks, the Rangers, the Hartford Wolf pack E team sports, uh, formerly well for a long time with, and, oh, and hold on. And, and the world, the, the world's most famous arena first. Okay. The world's most famous arena. All right. Thank you for that. And I'm sure he has a nice house he looks after too uh and uh came to msg or went to msg from uh, real madrid where he spent uh, a couple of years uh dave hopkinson is uh, with us nice to see you how are things I, 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 things have never been better bob it's a it's a fantastic day here in new york city big win last <laughs> i was gonna say the day after overtime <laughs> that's exactly right uh so I don't know really where to start. You you started right at the be the bottom of the of the the sports barrel almost. Um, did you start with the Toronto Argonauts? I did. Oh my god, you did your homework. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's great. Well, I remember actually. That's you're very kind because it has been more than a quarter of a century. You're absolutely right. You got a good memory. The Argos was my first start, uh, first stop, and, and uh, the start of my career, and it was great. Uh, and from there to the Raptors. Yeah, I, I moved to the Raptors uh, at startup. Uh, so if, if, let me think. The Raptors started play in November of 95. Right. I started there in November of 94 working for John Bitov. And um, you, you might remember they had that condition that, that we had to have sold 12,500 season tickets to get the franchise. It was a condition of expansion. So I was on that uh, group trying to trying like hell to sell season tickets. Well, that didn't turn out to be too difficult, did it? You know, you know, it was uh, 12, 12, five is a, a, a real number. It's yeah. a real number. Uh, we had to have a little, a little creativity at the end there with our friends at Shoppers Drug Mart. Cause, cause I'll tell you the, the, the uh, you remember this, Bob, uh, NBA basketball in 1995 in Toronto, isn't what it is in here in 2022. It was, it was, um, it, it was not easy. Well, I, well, I, 
What, now, now, hold on. When you say not easy, I mean, this was a Maple Leaf town. The Leafs are coming off of three or two really good years, 93 and 94. Uh, your, your biggest name was Isaiah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and in many ways, uh, some people argued you picked the wrong nickname because um, <laughs> it should have been the Toronto Grizzlies. Um, but because I don't know how many Raptors live close by, but that's uh, there are lots of bears close by. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but so, so, so well, wait a second. Hold on here. Toronto Grizzlies. I Toronto may be a hundred percent wrong, but oh no, oh no! Don't tell me you're going to tell me that it should have been the Bobcats. Well, my friend Bitov, at one point, <laughs> we used to walk our dogs at twelve o'clock midnight. We were neighbors. Okay. And and at, at, at well eleven eleven thirty, we used to meet in a, in a little park that was between our houses and walk our dogs. And the, well, we let the dogs off the leash, and they went crazy. And Bitov and I would sit on a park bench in the dark in the middle of the night, three or four nights a week. And talk about stuff like this. And at one point, he he told me that number two on the list was Bobcats. Can you confirm or deny that? <laughs> I, I would uh, never dispute uh, John's account. Uh, remember, there was that name, the team contest. And there was towers, That's right. tarantulas, and Bobcats. You're right. And uh, somehow Raptors came through. Yeah. Well, so it well, turned out to be a good choice. But Now, were, were, Dave, were you involved when... Um, because it did come full circle a little later. Were you involved when they decided to buy uh, the Toronto post office uh, to uh, to make it an arena? Were you part of that? Uh, yeah, I, I involved as I, I was working there. I, I, they didn't let me near important decisions like that. But uh, yeah, when I first started selling, if you remember, we, the franchise was going to build a, a new arena, but up at Bay and Dundas on the side of the Eaton Center. Right. Uh, that fell through and, and went down to the post office building. And I think it's been an unbelievable home and a, and a great, great, great location. Uh, but yeah, I was there. I was there through all that. And what, and what, what do you remember about the merger of the two teams? What, what, what comes to mind and how, how much job security was there and how many concern was oh. when you guys were being bought by Steve Stavros and his gang? You know what? I, I, that's a great question. I, I thought, well, that's it. I'm gone. Uh, because you know, this was we we got acquired, the Raptors got acquired, and we had been competing against the Maple Leafs, right? There were gonna be two buildings. That's right. They were the historic team, and they we were the upstarts, and I think we said mean things about each other behind one another's back. Uh, these types of things. So the minute I heard the the, the news that we got bought, uh, I thought, oh geez, okay, well, where's my word processor? It's time to get on the CV. I thought I'd be gone. And um you know, it was it was really. It, it, I'm so glad the deal came together ultimately because I think two arenas there would have been would have been a mistake. Uh, I think that uh, the Air Canada Center, which became Scotia Bank, has been a great, great, great uh, uh, facility in Toronto. So I'm glad it all came together. But it but it was bumpy. It was bumpy. The deal that got put together, I think it was around January of '98. Yeah. And you know, look, if as, as some of the smart folks with MBAs will tell you that. You know, half of mergers and acquisitions fail. And of those that fail, most of them, mostly it's because of cultural issues between the two companies. We had cultural issues between the two companies. Uh, they're gone now, but boy, it was, a, it, was, it was bumpy for a while. Well, for those who won't remember this, but I know you will and John will, uh, prior to the merger, when the competition existed to build a building, um, MLSE, spent considerable time denouncing the location that you guys had decided on as being a crap location, the post office building. 
I was a pile of junk and they wanted to build something that was what three, 400 yards up the road. Yeah. Above union station. Yeah. Essentially that was a much better location for reasons that I could never figure out. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even sure it's 300 meters. That's exactly right. It may not be. Yeah. That was the one that was going to be, it was going to be suspended uh, above union station. So yeah. the right the, I think the right outcome uh, ultimately we got there and there might've been some positioning and some posturing along the way. So, so t- you talk about the bumpy roads, and we're not we're not going to get into the minutiae, But um, who, who fixed the bumpy roads? I mean, th- this was not easy. I mean, the Raptors were the upstart, and the Maple Leafs were the Maple Leafs, and they thought that, uh, quite frankly, nothing they did was ever wrong. You know, uh, the um, Richard Petty uh, was the CEO at the time, and and I think, look, I think in any organization where the, the you know the Leafs did the acquiring. And the Raptors CEO becomes the president of the newly formed Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. I think that uh, that surprised a lot of people. I think it's a real test- testament to Richard how he um, you know navigated that with the staff. You know, there were some things being said behind his back uh, mm-hmm. with some of the, some of that staff that just thought, you know, here's this basketball guy he doesn't know sports, doesn't know the Maple Leafs. And uh, Richard uh, said, okay, well, you know, let's 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 figure this out together, and I went went ahead and did so. Um. Tell me how Bitov took this because he was, this was his baby, if you will, and almost his coming out party. Um, you know, those. But hadn't, he, hadn't John already been removed? Because it wasn't Alan Slate. Didn't he do the shotgun? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right, John. Um, uh, Alan had pulled the shotgun on John and said, either buy me out or, or, or I'm buying you out. And uh, I remember John addressed the staff. He pulled us all together. The deadline had just passed. And John had to react to the deadline. Otherwise, uh, Alan would be the acquirer. And um, what John told us was, you know, I let the deadline pass. And so I'll be out. Uh, I'll be the new boss. But this is my baby. This breaks my heart. I couldn't ever just say I'm selling. And uh, it was was, um, quite shocking. Um, You know, when when Alan uh, pulled the shotgun on John, and Alan was the minority owner and, and, and John had been the, ma- the majority owner, like the visionary behind the franchise. Uh, it, uh, it's, it, uh, we didn't see him selling either, uh, but he did. And Alan came in and did a good job until he sold out to Maple Leaf Gardens. You had concerns about the future of the franchise in those early days from the inside? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we did. Um, we, uh, I mean, some of it was, Performance related, the team got off to a good start in uh, in uh, I think we set an expansion record for wins in that first year with 21. We had a good second year, but the third year, which was all when all this was happening uh, with the ownership group, you know that 97 98 season, you know Damon Stoudemire forced to trade. Uh, we were having you know players. I think mean, uh, was it Kenny Anderson wouldn't report. Um, you know, the, the, we were, we were dealing with a 65 cent dollar. So some of it was structural. Yeah. We had the, we had the deck stacked against us at that time. And we had, again, and at that time, the little time I'm referring to Maple Leaf Gardens hadn't acquired, uh, the Raptors yet. So, so we were on our own, not playing as well as we would like, not generating the dollars we would like generating Canadian dollars and trying to compete against our U S counterparts. Yeah. We had some real, real strong headwinds. Was it now? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, Bob. You, no, you go. Well, I was going to say, too, uh, at that time, there were many who would have bet that the Toronto Raptors would be in greater financial difficulty than the um, the Vancouver Grizzlies. 
and there'd be a, a, almost a greater chance of the Raptors moving than, than Vancouver. And boy, did that turn out to be the exact opposite of true. Yeah, ultimately, ultimately it has. And, you know, uh, so, you know, the NBA's expansion into, into Canada, you know, with those two franchises, the, the, the Raptors and the Grizzlies, the Vancouver Grizzlies, it was, it was hard and it was scary when we saw the Grizzlies pack up and move to Memphis. John? Do you think it was a, do you think in the end, Vancouver leaving might have been a really positive thing for the Raptors? I, I don't know. Uh, I think you could argue either side of that. I, I will tell you, there, maybe we picked up a little bit of national business or a little national interest. Uh, truthfully, I, 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 I wish they had stayed. Uh, and I, would have, I, th- I think it would have been better to um, uh, you know, incubate interest in NBA basketball with two franchises in Canada as opposed to, as opposed to just the one. And, of course, we've got that tension. The, the rest of the country hates Toronto. We all know that. And so I think I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's still people out, out east or out west or on the prairies that have trouble cheering for the Raptors because they're from Toronto. I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't. So, so the, the, there's a turning point, the tipping point. Was it as simple as getting Vince? You know, there were two things that happened at, at, at the uh, exact same time. We opened the Air Canada Centre and uh, Vince arrived. And uh, so I think if you were local in Toronto, the Air Canada Centre, a shiny state-of-the-art venue at the time, really first class. And then you had this electric, sensational athlete um, uh, join the club. It was just, it was, that was the turning point. You're 100% right. Well, it was interesting. You had two Carters, one as the coach and one as the player, and and both of them created um, more than a little kerfuffle <laughs> yeah, uh, they, on their they way both out. Made noise, that's for sure. Drew attention. You know, well, it certainly did. I was also going to say to you, you know, when we were talking about you mentioned we we're talking about Vancouver. Um, Montreal has produced a few very talented basketball players of late. A couple of whom um, playing with the Raptors. What do you think Montreal would do in the NBA? Not that there's a chance right now of that happening, but do you think that city is would accept basketball? Uh, I do. I do. Uh, I, uh, I went to school in Montreal. I've got a daughter living in Montreal today. Um, uh, she's at Concordia. I'm a big fan of that community, a big fan of that marketplace. Um, and they produce great athletes locally. They've got a good com- uh, corporate base that's, that's very stable. I think I think a franchise could do really well there. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens, of course, um, some would say survived because uh, they, for many years, they had control of the Quebec marketplace. So uh, they really had control of all the French Canadian players. Um, so are you they, suggesting that they would get Chris Boucher back, or what? Well, I'm well <laughs> indirectly. What I'm what I'm saying, what I'm wondering is, do you have to have a French Canadian player? in order to create that kind of dialogue that would make Montreal successful. I gather you don't. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I think what, I think if you've got a hometown hero, I think that only makes things even greater, but I think you've got to win. And I think that ultimately the fans, you know, if they've got to choose between a, a bunch of uh, uh, strangers playing for the team that delivers them a winner or a bunch of hometown athletes that they can relate to, but don't, I think they're going to pick the winner. Yeah, NBA, <laughs> NBA has no foreseeable plans of expansion, do they? I haven't heard anything. 
I'm uh, no idea. I'm not uh, in a position to to comment. Not, well, they they're they're Bob. You know they are. They're going back to Seattle, and they they haven't decided whether it's Vegas or not. That's exactly what's happening. Well, that allows New Orleans to go to the East because it's to have New Orleans in the West is stupid. So, there is that anyway. Um, hey, so so Dave, the, you know, from the time you started selling this. I mean, we've gone basically from an analog world to a digital world. How has that changed your job? Jeez, I'll, I'll tell you, it's really interesting. Uh, I just, I just had a, a, a young man come in right before I, I started this podcast with you. He's looking for a job, he's, uh, and he's looking for an entry level job in sports. And I said to him, "Boy, you know, it's interesting. When I when I first started in the ticket sales business, uh, that was where all the dummies were, all the knuckleheads in the business, which is the only reason I got in." And I said, if, if I think about where that business is now, it's where all the smartest people in the organization are working. You know, uh, the digital transformation, uh, cost for analytics, uh, what the Internet's enabled us to do, what, what uh, always on connectivities and customers' uh, pockets on their smartphones enable us to do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievably sophisticated right now. And, um, you know, in my career, I was, I was selling tickets for a long time, working that part of the business. I went away into partnerships for about 10 years before I went back into ticket sales. And the transformation uh, in that business, in what felt like a relatively short period of time, in only 10 years, it was total. Uh, I thought going back into ticketing would be pretty straightforward and pretty easy, and it was unbelievably complex, and I was lost for a long time. What made what caused that change? Just the uh, development of technology? A, a technology, and, and yes, and what technology allowed us to do to, to maximize the opportunity. You know, really, if you think about the business 25 years ago, you had your season seat holders. They, they took up just about everything. You had some stuff around the sides. You'd try and sell, you know, print ads and whatever else. And now when I think about how we think about yield, how many season seat holders, at what price point, what should we take to the marketplace? How should we price that? I mean, if someone says to me now, well, what's it, what's the ticket cost? I say, I have no idea. What opponent, what day, What's our one loss record at that time? There is no really, there's really very little that's fixed in the way of price anymore. The dynamic nature of it, and we, you know, we had uh, an important playoff game here last night that we won. Those last few tickets that were open in the marketplace were going for extraordinarily high prices. Like? Well, you know, I see listings and I don't see sales, you know. Okay, uh, fair enough. You know, so there's, you know, it's like Muskoka real estate, right? Somebody's always going to put a sign along with a big number and just see what happens. Um, but you know, we, you know, we, you're going to see ticket prices here, you know, approaching a thousand bucks and, and for a hockey game, that's, that's, that's big, that's big money. Well, just out of interest, uh, the Saturday night game at, um, Scotiabank, uh, the allegation was the cheapest ticket available was $400. Yeah, now, I don't I mean, know that the, was the, face the, or not the, the, uh, on the secondary market. You, you couldn't get a pair for less than a thousand dollars. There you go. You could not get it. So th- that's probably right. Speaking of Scotiabank, you know, if, if, if there was a crowning achievement that you had in in uh, in Toronto, Dave, was that you were the quarterback of the naming rights deal that you did with Scotiabank. Is is there any way you can give us any insight to where you started with 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 what number and and how you managed to get allegedly eight hundred million dollars out of a bank over the next twenty years? Well, that was, you know, you know, we, where we started was, uh, you know, we had been, a, we were coming off a 20 year deal. So, uh, you know, Air Canada, who had had it for 20 years and 
the 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 landscape in which Air Canada had been operating, you know, with with a head-to-head competitor and Canadian at that time. I mean, they, they they made a decision. Air Canada was right for their business at that time, and I think they made a decision that was right. Twenty years later, when they when they stepped down, stayed team partner, but stepped down and let the naming rights go to somebody else. Uh, in the meantime, you know what we had seen with with you know the financial services sector exploding in spending. Um, you know, they're a, a company, you know, Scotia Bank trying to be the bank of hockey, uh, you know, being the bank of hockey, BMO choosing a strategy for, uh, for uh, soccer and, and their deep partnership with TFC. We thought it would be a competitive marketplace, watching what was going on down in the U.S. and how those five big banks in Canada, in Canada have been performing. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, you know, John, Scotia Bank was our, was our first choice. They were the incumbent partner. Uh, we talked to others in the marketplace to gather some sense of where they might be, but we felt we could make the right deal with Scotia Bank, and ultimately we did. Um, is it, do you do a game? Of, is it, does it become a game of poker though? Do you start throwing numbers out and they start throwing back, or do you? How, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, poker. Yeah, I, I think I think in any good in any good negotiation, there's going to be an expectation that is set of you know, yeah, let's not waste each other's time. Well, you know. There's a number that's going to work and there's some that's not going to work. So it's within a bandwidth, you know, and there's, 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 there's some natural tension in there. Um, we were, you know, we were looking for a number that, that, you know, was top of the market. And I think, I think uh, MLSC deserved that, but I'll, t- but what I told them is like, this deal is going to get measured at three points. The, you know, the day we do the deal, the midpoint and the end, and that's how we'll evaluate whether, whether this was a good deal or not. And I think, you know, there was a lot of noise about the size of the deal when it got done. But here we are, what are we, four, you know, four or so years later, and yeah. already the marketplace is caught up. So, you know, there, and there's a possibility we're looking at this deal by the midpoint going, wow, they, they got a bargain. Actually, you, 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 you joked about that. Maybe the, the, the day it, it came to fruition was the day they also signed John Tavares. And so there was there was more discussion in the marketplace about John DeVars going to be playing at Scotiabank Arena in every newspaper, on every website, on every radio station. And after day one, that July 1st of three, four years ago, I'm sure the guys in the marketing department at Scotiabank, John Doig and those guys were thrilled at what was going on. Well, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, John. I'm sure they were. And they also probably weren't expecting a NBA trophy. In their first year of the deal, so so I think uh, I think I really do believe a deal is is best when it works out and makes everybody happy at the end, and I I think both sides are happy with that deal. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to comment on a mutual friend um, who was involved in that uh, deal. He um, serves as our uh, sports business expert on this program. Uh, Brian Cooper, if you have anything uh, negative to say about Mr. Cooper, please say it it now. Say it now, guys. Uh, I, I, I adore Brian, uh, Brian, uh, Coop, Coop, Coop's, uh, someone that I consider not only a friend, but a mentor. Uh, he, uh, has been in the business, uh, so long. We've got, we've got a deep friendship and I'll tell you, you know, thinking he was involved from the Scotiabank. bank. He represented uh, right. Scotiabank bank on that side of the deal. And interestingly, our, our, our friendship was strengthened through that, uh, process. Not, not, it didn't tear out it at all. Uh, he was creative. He was constructive. Um, he understood where we had to be and why. Uh, he was. I don't. I, without Brian, I'm not sure that deal gets done. And you guys worked together, right, with the Raptors? You were both there simultaneously. We did. We did. He, Brian departed very shortly after the uh, acquisition by the Leafs. Uh, you know Brian. You know his personality. 
uh, <laughs> <laughs> which makes him so good at what he does. It's, it's such a wonderful friend. But uh, I think there was some personal issues, some, some personalities that clashed with the new owners, and he, did, he didn't stay too long. Actually, actually now that we're on the, uh, the world of name dropping, uh, I'm going to throw a few more at you. Tim Lywicki. Uh, one of the best people I've ever met in my life. Uh, and what did, what, what did he teach you? Um, Tim really taught me how to think bigger. Uh, Tim, Tim's a visionary. Tim's a world-class leader. Tim's the world's best salesperson. I learned a lot from Tim. Um, it, was a, it was a delight working with him. It was exhausting working with him. I think I finally got the weight off that I put on when I was working with him. Uh, he's an animal. He's an animal. He's nonstop. He's ferocious. Uh, he uh, wants to win. Uh, and I consider Tim a wonderful friend to this day. In fact, his Oakview group, which is on an absolute tear, that, uh, that daughter of mine that I mentioned um, uh, at Concordia is going to finish school uh, and uh, this summer work for him. Wow. At, uh, so, um, yeah, Tim, I, I uh, adored every day working with Tim. I okay, take it so you're not surprised that he didn't last longer with MLSE, are you? Uh, you know, no, I'm not. Uh, but that's because, you know, t- I, Tim had this ambition to go build something for himself. Right. And maybe he hurried that up a little bit. Um, and maybe he didn't last in, in, in the CEO role in Toronto as long as, as, as he might have. But that, that ambition to go build something for himself uh, was there when I met him. And, um, and I'm, I'm thrilled to see what, what, what he's building. So let me throw this at you. Because I, 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 Richard Petty obviously had an impact on sports in Toronto. Tim had a huge impact. He built on what Richard had created. But it was Tim's vision that has allowed a lot of the quality people out of MLSE to flourish even more so than they did. And, I, and I'm going to, this is really internal stuff, but Jeff DeLines with the Mets. Tom Bistori's with the Islanders. You're obviously at MSG. Michael Doyle is with the Vancouver Canucks. There is a whole, Mike Cosentino's with the Islanders. There's a whole bunch of people who were cornerstone guys at MLSE that, that really made it an elite place to work. That when Tim got the phone call and they say, we're looking for somebody, he says, I had this guy in Toronto. He was really good. And it's the, the, the world of networking is so small, even in the world that you live in. Doesn't yeah. that happen? It, it, it does. And I give Tim an awful lot of credit. Uh, Tim was, you know, a reference for me for this role. Tim was a reference for me at Real Madrid. Um, however, I really want to give Richard a lot of credit here. And yeah. Richard, a process person. Look, you know, you know Tim, Tim might have unleashed the top layer of growth for me as a, as a professional, but it was Richard that really put the process in the discipline and, and, and helped create a whole bunch of us into lifetime learners. So, you know, uh, you know, a very different personality. Uh, you knew Richard really well, John. You know, uh, a process-oriented guy, a, a guy with a CPG, a packaged goods background. He brought a real business discipline. Uh, did he bring uh, the vision that Tim does? Probably probably not. But he brings more process than Tim does. So I was the be- a wonderful beneficiary of, of both, you know, learning a whole lot of process and critical thinking uh, and, and um I got my development from Richard. I got a lot of vision from Tim. Dave Hopkinson is our guest. He's the executive vice president of MSG Sports and a bunch of other titles as well. 
uh, we'll uh, we'll continue our. But he'll sell you a ticket still. Beneath oh, that, yeah. he'll still sell you a ticket. Okay, he's got a pair. Who needs a pair? <laughs> um, we'll we'll come back with uh, more after these messages. Bob McCowan, John Shannon, Dave Hopkinson is with us. Um, I want to move on. You so you spent twenty years or so um, in Toronto with um, MLSE, and then you take. Um, a job with a team not even in the same continent as uh, where you live and where you've grown up. You go to an historic and significant European soccer side, Real Madrid, in 2018. Obviously, they came to you. I'm, I'm Well, I'm assuming they came to you, approached you, made you an offer. Were you intrigued immediately or were you cautious? Uh, well, both. Um you know, uh, we'd had a lot of good success at MLSC and sustained that for uh, quite a while on the business side. So, you know, I'd, I'd had the good fortune of, of saying no to a couple of um, overtures along the way. And one of the things that guided me was, look, I, I, I don't want to just do like for like. I don't want to just um, uh, just move for the sake of movement. Uh, I, I wanted to do something only if I felt that it would be magical. And, um, and I, you know, I talked to a couple of recruiters, they talked to me and that's how it all works. And, and I finally got the, when I got the call, the first time was a, a, from a really dear friend of mine, a guy named Joe Becker at CAA. And he said, okay, I got it. Well, you're moving. And I said, oh, am I? Okay. Tell me more about that. And, uh, just having a laugh with them. He says, well, you're going to Madrid and, and, oh, wow. Okay. So you're right. Intrigued, uh, richly intrigued. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity for anyone in sports. But cautious and nervous. I didn't speak a word of Spanish. But didn't speak a word of Spanish. Um, had never worked in global football. With all due respect to MLS soccer and, and my experience at TFC, that's not that's not global football. So, but but I really did think that wow, what an incredible opportunity! Not 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 for my career, but to to learn. And um, I. Uh, Ultimately, did it, but uh, yeah, I had a whole lot of anxiety along the way. International okay. sports and international business basically is conducted in the English language. But did you have were there were there difficulties in communication? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, when I got to the partnership scene, I was taking over there. Uh, all of them spoke some level of English, but mm-hmm. some of it was you know they were they were. Uh, Couple of uh, no, there was one woman on the team that actually saw New York last week, Kiara uh, Travella, uh, completely proficient. There were others that really struggled in English, and so you know we had to build trust. Uh, I had to take my Spanish lessons. Um, they, I we I asked them to each take English lessons. We did some meeting in the middle. Um, you're, you're you're right, Bob. That that you know international business is done in English uh, principally. That's great, and so whether you're doing business in China in Brazil and San Francisco and Germany, it's, it's going to be conducted. If it's international, it's going to be conducted in English. Thank goodness. That was an advantage for me. Uh, internally. Yeah. Uh, the, the struggles, not just around language, but in, in a brand new culture, mm. uh, there, 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 you know, listen, there was, there was you know, moments of tension and moments of friction. And, you know, I, I tried to remind myself, don't take it personally. If I'm, if I'm there at MLSC and they bring in some Spaniard to teach me how to market the hockey business, uh, I bet I bet there'd be you know, tension and friction in that in that you bet. As well. So so I, I understood it. I got it. I, I empathized with it. Um, I, I to this day I, I uh, 
loved my time there. Would, uh, you know, in the right set of circumstances, if I, if I find a big bag of money tomorrow, I, I might move to Spain later the same day. What, Seriously, uh, you loved it that much, huh? Loved it, loved it, loved it. The, the lifestyle, the food, the weather, uh, the wine, uh, warm people, uh, not a whole lot of snow. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I adore Spain. What doors would Real Madrid open that the Toronto Maple Leafs couldn't? Well, you know, I, I can say this, uh, and I'll speak for the Rangers as well. You know, today hockey's not a global business, and trying to trying to generate a conversation, it, it, you know, in, in certain marketplaces where you're talking about hockey, it's just it's just not going to happen. It's not on the radar. There's 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 next to next to nothing. Uh, you know, football, global football. Uh, soccer, it, it's the world's most popular sports played in every country on, uh, on the world. There's not, you know, we're, we're heading towards a Champions League final here on the 28th of May that Real Madrid will be playing in. Um, yeah, it, it, you just get a whole different scale. You know, let me, let me give you an example. And I was trying to explain this to my father why I was making this decision. Um, and I was explaining it at the time. You know, well, Dad, you know, like social media is a currency. And the Maple Leafs had about a million followers on Facebook at the time. And Real Madrid had 100 million. And he was like, okay, well, I get that, you know, so, so uh, the popularity of football, there's every, every, not once talking about a partnership with Real Madrid, did somebody say not interested? <laughs> really? <laughs> did we get it all done? Absolutely not. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, we always get the first meeting. Were you, were you part of uh, any of those discussions about that Super League? Um, I was, uh, you were aware of it, aware of them. Look, I, I, the super league, you know, I, I would say, you know, came out of the gate and, and obviously met some horrible public reaction. Um, that doesn't mean that, that there aren't people who, and very intelligent people who think the system needs to change. So at Real Madrid, you know, the ownership structure, that's a true club. That is, that is owned by the 94,000 socios the partners that own the club. And they are, some of them are wealthy, sure, and business owners. Some of them are taxi drivers and teachers and, and regular folk. So they're like the Green Bay Packers. They're like the Green Bay Packers. They're like the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, I think, still have that structure. FC yes, Barcelona has that exact same structure, right? So this is not a club that's owned by, say, a Russian oligarch backed by petrodollars or you know Qataris. And so there is concern in, in, in you know, clubs like Real Madrid, uh, like uh, Barcelona. Like, what do we do? This, we're, we're self-help here. We can't, you know, we can't uh, rely on, uh, on, our, on our wealthy owner to save us here uh, if we want to stay competitive. So um, I think that the Super League was, you know, intended to address, um, you know, uh, some financial issues around um, competing in, 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 in top leagues and making sure that those revenues are distributed amongst those clubs. And, and so I would suspect, based on what you're saying there, that you, you foresee there will be another kick at that can? Um, I, you know, what I would say is understanding how they think. Uh, they still believe things need to change. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, they'll, they'll be satisfied until – you know, there's some of those inequities being addressed, but that, but those inequities can be addressed in different ways too. I'm intrigued by working under that kind of structure. Um, we don't have that here very much. I've certainly never worked under it. And I've always had an, an understanding of who I worked for and who I had to suck up to at the right moment. 
I, I would tell you, I would tell you, Bob and, and, and Dave, if if I'm wrong, you can correct me. The closest thing in North America to that would be MLSE, <laughs> with the corporate structure that is MLSE, and the ability of of the corporations to take a step back and say, okay, let's have a report on that. We're not going to make a decision overnight. We're not going to do anything knee jerk. I think that you know the corporate governance that that MLSE does would be very similar to something like what you're talking about in Madrid. Is that fair? Yeah, there's. I think there's some parallels. You know, you know, at the end of the day, the owner, the owner of, pardon me, the president of Real Madrid, uh, Florentino Perez, is not the owner, right? He's elected by the members, and so that's that um, is a type of corporate governance where he's got to make sure that the interests that he's taking on behalf of the club are, are in the club's best interest. Because remember, if they're not, he'll be voted out, and um, I, I, I that does produce some interesting nuances in choices in some choices. Uh, you know, if you think about something like season tickets, you know, uh, how much do you want to take the prices up on those that are effectively your bosses? These types of things, right? So, so um, I, I, I loved working in that environment. I learned a lot working in that environment. And, and um, I think it's, it's an environment that has lots of strengths. Is there a greater sense of personal security in your job under that structure or less security uh in in terms of florentino's view why well, no in terms of working under uh uh in in an organization that is public uh, essentially publicly owned it it didn't uh it didn't have much impact on how i viewed it uh and i don't think it does when i, when I think about how my staff approached it how they felt about it, i don't think the ownership structure had that much of a sense on their other sense of job security um I think that, that one of the things that I was asked to do when I went there was make sure that we are, you know, driving the business forward here and bring more uh, a slightly uh, more uh, North American approach to the business. Then, you know, in North America, there's a high sense of um, personal accountability for results. Mm. And do you, do you think, actually, that's an interesting because I've always thought that we look at European sports and say, wow, there's so many differences for us. And I, you always wonder, are they ahead of us or are they behind us? Th is the attitude similar to that in Europe looking to North America? Are they ahead of us or are they behind us? Yes. Yeah. Well, it depends what you're measuring. I think, I think that in, in North America, we have done an expert job commercializing the business opportunity. And I think most Europeans would say, yeah, they are really, really good at that. Um, in, in, in Europe, uh, there's, is, is, the, is the club, is the team, is that a business or is that a community institution? That is more of an open question still in Europe. And, and the goal there is not uh, necessarily revenue maximization. So um, I think sometimes we can learn things from that long view they take of how they run their businesses. Um, I, I, again, I, I, what's, what's been great for me having lived and worked on both sides of the pond is, is trying to you know, take the, the, the best out of each world. And you don't want to put you in a, I don't want to put you on a spot, but you've gone from working for 94,000 people to one. <laughs> well, that's one, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, uh, this is a publicly traded company and there's an awful lot of shareholders of Madison Square Garden <laughs> Sports, but, um, I'm doing the best to serve all the masters here. So is in the early 19 like New York, uh, sorry, 
I was just saying, is there anything like New York? I mean, New York is, I love, I, I worked there for five years. I just, I, I could not get enough of walking down the street, up the elephant ramp to the, to the garden. You, you get it, John. I mean, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's a privilege. Uh, I've, I, I've, you know, stay here in the city. I've got my, my, my place here in the city. I walked to work. I walked to work today. I'm going to walk home uh, tonight. Uh, the energy here is incredible. And then to be doing it at the world's most famous arena. This, this, this is a special place. Uh, moments here are bigger. It's a big stage and it's, it's, it is a special place in the world. In the early 1970s, Charlie Finley, the then owner of the Oakland Athletics, tried to sell uh, one of his players for cash to another team, and the commissioner turned that down, said, we don't do that. Um, and it isn't done in any way in any of the major sp sports leagues in North America, but that's how it works in international soccer. Hmm. How problematic is that? You know, it's... Um, it's <sighs> It's also an opportunity. Remember, you know, if you're thinking about the big five uh, football leagues in Europe, you know, uh, La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, Liga, and the EPL, it's tough to make trades, right? So, so the solving, solving players' movement with, with cash uh, and, and, again, you know, buying the asset from another club actually is a way to just, you know, you know, acquire the player or make a deal that can work for both sides in the absence of a trade. Uh, you know, about five minutes before I went to Real Madrid, uh, Madrid sold Ronaldo to Juventus, a deal that worked for both sides, but there was, there was no trade mechanism. So uh, both sides were happy with that deal. It was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do by the athlete. And the only mechanism to really make a deal there was, was cash. So I think here where we've got, you know, trades that happen within a league, that works. I think over there, that system of, um, of transfer can work as well. Well, I want to, I, to that point, I want to ask you, if you had control of the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, would you permit, in your wisdom, and based on what you've seen happen in international soccer, would you permit a cash sale? The, the, the difference is, over here uh, in North America, where the leagues were organized uh, and have teams as franchises, I don't think it works. I think uh, in European football, where the clubs tend to have a lot more power than the leagues, uh, tend to be uh, competing, remember, not just in domestic competitions or league, in league competitions, but in global competitions. Mm -hmm. right. that's, the, that's the right mechanism that works over there. So, so I think we've got it right on each side of the pond, given the differing circumstances. I see that. That's a really good point about uh, where the power of the, the leagues really is, you know, with the four commissioners in, in, in the big four sports in North America versus the power of Manchester United, the power of Liverpool, of Chelsea, of FC Barcelona and, and Real Madrid and Juventus and Bayern Munich. It's, it's a fascinating difference of, uh, and a contrasting business style, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, they, you know, if I think about my role here at um, MSG, I'm talking to the NHL multiple times a week. I'm talking to the NBA multiple times a week. Uh, boy, when I was at Real Madrid, I, I don't think I spoke to La Liga twice. Uh, <laughs> this is you, you know, it is a, it, you, you know, it is a uh, much more independent way of doing business. Now, by the way, other clubs will do it. Will do it differently. This was, 
but but the point is the point is generally generally correct. You know, at Real Madrid, you're not really supported by the league quite the same way, and certainly not with respect to things like your global business. You're both in the league and not in the league. You know, you're in the league as it, as it relates to the domestic competition in right. La Liga, but you're not in the, in, the, in the league with respect to things like the Copa del Rey and the national competition, which is run by the Spanish Federation. You're in UEFA and playing in Champions League or maybe Europa League if Champions League doesn't go that well. So, you know, it's, it's the only way you can structure it is to be your own master because you're only in each league so much as it makes sense to be in that particular league. Yes, but you would have to concede that every once in a while a Lester jumps up and um, and 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 does something extraordinary. Yeah, which makes it great. Yeah, but it doesn't happen very often. No, it does. It happens a lot more often in major sports in North America because of salary caps and because you got to trade assets for assets. Where I, I could make the argument that in European soccer at the top end, the rich get richer, and the poor try and survive. Well, I think you'd be right, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Just, I wouldn't dispute that at all. Uh, in in North American sports here, we have got a sense of you know that the, this should be parity. There should be something closer to parity. Your team. You should go into the year thinking your team has a chance. If it's been well run and well managed, you know, mm -hmm. and spending at or near the cap, they should have a chance at, at, at winning. And I think we've mostly accomplished that in the big four sports here. You're right with respect to European sports. Yeah, I don't. You know, Real Madrid is going to win La Liga this year. And they will be in that competition next year, and that's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to, to win it again because you know they've got the economic muscle to outspend their some of their domestic rivals, and it's the same you know across those those big five leagues. The, the the rich have a better ability to compete. We only have a couple minutes left, John. I want to give you an opportunity to ask something else, but I, I I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to bring you now to the the present and your your MSG job. You have all these franchises in all these leagues at various levels. We haven't even gotten into the esports thing, which is a completely different animal. But when you put a marketing plan together, is it a marketing plan that exists for all your teams at the various levels in the various sports, or are they customized um, out of necessity? The latter. They're customized out of necessity. So, you know, if I, if I take the two big examples, the principal franchises here, the Knicks and the Rangers, they've got very different needs. Uh, mm. You know, the Knicks fan here, um, you know, the, the team has, you know, the dominance of the city when it's playing well. Uh, you know, everybody, the Knicks are, the Knicks are, they remind, to be honest with you, they remind me of the Maple Leafs. Uh, mm. It's the most, uh, one of the most important franchises in the league in the spiritual home of the game, et cetera, et cetera. So you think about, you know, that, that, um, you know, what, what it's like when the Leafs are winning, it's magical. They dominate the conversation uh, with the Rangers. We've got, you know, hockey is, this is not necessarily a hockey country. It's a good hockey market, but the catchment area is smaller. So, you know, we're running a campaign around the Rangers right now uh, talking about no quit in New York and, and you know, really talking about that, that this is, if you want to be a hockey fan, if you want to be a Rangers fan, the time is now. We're trying to grow fans for the Rangers right now, for example, in a way that with the, with the Knicks, we're, you know, we're not focused on growing new fans. To, to that point, you know, we used to, and Bob and I used to joke, we still do often, that in Chicago, there's 20,000 fans and they all show up at United Center. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that the same feeling with the, with the Rangers then? Uh, no, but I get what you're saying. 
Uh, and that's, and you know, I've, I've, I've heard that. I've heard that in, re- in relation to Chicago. I've heard that in relation to NHL. You know, that, that, that one of the things that hurts the NHL rings is the, the fans are so passionate and they're at, they're at the game. Look, you know, it's, it's, you know, the opportunity down here for hockey um, uh, is, is a rich one. It's not as big today as, as, as uh, basketball is. Will it get there? I don't know. Um, but I think we've got a duty here while we're in this business as, a, as an original six franchise, as ambassadors for the game, to grow fans uh, if we're going to continue to see the, the business survive. When I think about the Knicks opportunity, I think sometimes a little less about how we grow new fans, but how we keep the fans that we have happy. Uh, especially if you don't <laughs> yeah, but, win the championship. Winning? Yeah, winning, <laughs> winning would help. Um, I don't know. I don't know. How's your jump shot? <laughs> <laughs> not not going to be helpful. Uh, David, thank you so much for this. This is fascinating. And um, I wish we had more time to chat, but I'm sure you're, you're more than happy to uh, get off of this call. We uh, thank you very much for your time, and, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again sometime. Congratulations on your success as well and continued success. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Dave Hopkinson, we'll come back after these messages. McCowan and Shannon, back with you. Our thanks once again to Dave Hopkinson. It's uh, most interesting. That's the uh, first time we actually had met. Is, really? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've known David for, gosh, 25 years. Um, uh, but you can see how he can sell anything, right? You can see how he could get into the naming rights business. And I still remember the day he walked into our, our, uh, our senior management meeting at MLSE. And he said, boys, we just got the stadium paid for. It. <laughs> <laughs> that was BMO Field. And everybody looked at me. He said, what are you talking about? He said, nope, got the money. Don't worry. Naming rights, BMO. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I heard nothing but good things. Everybody I know yeah. has told me that um, he's a terrific hey. guy. And I... I he's, a hard, he's a hard ass. He's a hard ass. Tells you the truth. Uh, coaching changes uh, in the hockey. Las Vegas, Philadelphia, Winnipeg, Detroit. Anybody else, John, looking for a coach? Well, as of today, I think that's the list. You know, I mean, uh, the Islanders filled theirs yesterday. They hired uh, Barry Trotz assistant Lane Lambert. Uh, but uh, And our buddy uh, Bruce Boudreaux is going back to Vancouver. That was announced last Friday. So uh, those we might, are the talk, to, we might right talk to Gabby later in the week, right? No, we're going to talk to him Friday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Babcock is out there. Quenville's out there. Tortorella's out there. Trotz is now out there. Yeah. Uh, which of these guys is most likely to, to land a job, if any? The two T's, Trotz and Tortorella. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think, I think that uh, John is dearly wanting to get back in. And obviously, Barry, I, I think there's a lot of people. I, I think there's a lot of people that are, suggesting that there's owners out there saying, we can get Barry Trotz. We can get Barry Trotz. We should think about getting rid of our guy and get Barry Trotz. I think that's, I think that conversation has occurred a couple of places and I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of teams still make changes of their coaches because of it. Do you think Quenville will try to get back in? He's got to get through, go through Gary first. Yes, he will definitely get back. Absolutely. And he deserves to be back in, in my opinion. And Mike Babcock. That's an interesting one. You know, he's still getting paid by big blue. Um, and he, you know, I, I, I do think Mike wants to get back in, but I don't, I'm not sure what kind of hurry he's in to be well, honest. He's making a big nut. Um, yes, he is. So he's probably less motivated than he would be under normal circumstances. But I, I, I just got a feeling that if, if the right offer came along, he'd, he'd go for it. I don't know. I think yep. once a coach, always a coach, isn't he? 
I agree. And I, and I, and, and I do think that Mike can, you know, the fact he's worked at the University of Saskatchewan in the last couple of years, I think he still feels he has something to offer. We got to get out of here. Again, our thanks to Dave Hopkinson for John Shannon, Bob McCowan. See you tomorrow. Goodbye, everybody. Mm-hmm.